Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Beauty is something that ultimately has to be encountered. It can't be argued. It can't be reasoned. Beauty has to be encountered. And until beauty is encountered, it's not very helpful necessarily to this discussion. And I think people will continue to conflate beauty with attractiveness or appeal. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I am Dr. Mariano Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute, and today I have the great pleasure of hosting a conversation which will focus on a topic that is too often neglected in intellectual circles and is elsewhere reduced to its most superficial meaning, which is beauty. To discuss this topic with me, I also am very happy to say that there is a friend, Michael Raya. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Mariana. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Michael is an Austin resident and a Texas native, if I'm not wrong. That's right. He has dedicated his professional life to, I would say, restore beauty and to do so with reference to one of its most interesting roles. But since I think Michael is the best one to describe his own job, why don't you just you know, say a couple of words about yourself and what you do. Sure. Thank you. Uh, my background is in architectural design, and I spent just about 12 years post-undergrad doing that work as a project manager for a commercial architect that did a lot of work in the nonprofit world, a lot of education and religious clients. About halfway through that time, I really began working a lot more with Catholic clients, which was truly a desire. And during that time, I discerned the Lord calling me to dive a little bit more deeply into the church's teachings on beauty didn't know that they were there, and it took a little bit of time to find them. But through that search process, I kept being led to discover the church's teachings on liturgy. And of course, now we know that that's uh, really the source of the church's teachings on beauty. That's kind of the ground zero, if you will, going there to discover the meaning of beauty itself and the impact that it has in the wider world around. Long story short, I earned a master's degree in liturgy from the Liturgical Institute in Chicago, which is attached to Mundelein Seminary, also known as St. Mary of the Lake, and was really enjoying the work that I was doing for the architect at the time and gradually discerned the Lord calling me to leave that firm and to establish my own practice as a liturgical design consultant. Studio IO was born about three years ago, and we've since been serving Catholic clients parishes, dioceses, schools, restoring beauty and working to plan renovation and new construction projects that are sacred in nature. So we have a great stake and investment in reclaiming and restoring beauty. And of course, working with what we have around us to try to bring beauty back into the greater discussion. Wow, this is amazing. And you went to the end of this conversation, which is the meaning of beauty in for the sacred and for liturgy. And we'll get back to that. But because we were talking about beauty... I think we should start from, you know, a general premise. So let me ask you, what is beauty for you? Beauty for me is not something that is for me per se. Beauty, I would say, is an objective reality. As much as possible, I have really been striving to understand the Catholic Church's definition of beauty, which is objective and I think is profound. Beauty is an ontological or related to the being of God. And as the Catholic Church teaches, particularly through the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas, some of the other church fathers and great theologians, particularly it's the attribute of God's love that is expressed through beauty. So it's understanding who God is, the nature of his being, 
the nature of his plants for all of creation that flow from who he is, and particularly the attribute of his expression of love, of sharing love, of calling us to love. And truly, it's, I think, when we understand that, that we understand the profound implications for beauty and culture and the implications of a culture divorced or devoid of beauty. Of course, we go back to Aquinas and to the objective nature of beauty. But then let me ask you this. If beauty is the attribute of God that we see in his love and in creation, can we see beauty everywhere? We can see beauty everywhere insofar as God is present everywhere. And to varying degrees, we participate with God's plan. From a theological standpoint, we would understand this as the struggle between nature and grace and our desire to allow God to work with our nature, to build that through grace and virtue. And of course, the desire of sin and the temptation that we have to say no, that we will not serve, we will not work with God's plan. And so, of course, when we understand God's purpose and his designs in terms of original order, there is an opportunity that we have to participate, to work with that, to expand it, to allow its work to be furthered, or we can be an obstacle or an opponent to that work. So let me ask you this. Assuming that, you know, I don't believe in God, but I do recognize beauty, or assuming that while not believing God, I recognize that something is not beautiful, would you argue that the things that I define beautiful or not beautiful are necessarily linked to that? Or could my taste be somehow corrupted? Or am I seeing beauty where beauty, you know, where is not present? How do we bring together the ideas of beauty of people who do not believe and would not agree with what you're saying, right? So it's the emanation for God. Well, that's true for you. But what is beauty for a non-believer? Sure. Well, I think that there's certainly a place in the discussion for the realm of the subjective. And this is where we see personal taste enter the picture. And there's a way to deal with that within the system. The potential that each of us has to behold beauty or to apprehend it, if you will, can be understood in the system in terms of our training, what we've been raised or trained by our experiences and our education, our formation to behold as beautiful. So there's different qualities of attractiveness that we can, each of us might find that we differ in a little bit. There are objective qualities that we could point to from an anthropological or sociological framework and see that across cultures and civilizations, uh, across many, many different time periods in our history, have been kind of beheld as beautiful and principles that have been woven into the fabric of society. But of course, there's always going to be variations. And from a moral standpoint, tying this to a theological approach, I think, again, this is where the framework rests a little bit more squarely on our beliefs we can bring in moral practices as well, i.e. the person who is more in tune with a life of virtue and is closer to the heart of God, understands themselves as an expression of God's love and is called into a participation in God's love and through a relationship of love with other people, will be in some ways, you could say, more capable of beholding beauty, of appreciating beauty, of participating in beauty. Whereas those who are out of sync with that order will have a greater difficulty, if you will, apprehending beauty or participating. Even those of us who are creating, those who are formed in virtue, according to this definition, are more capable of, and by necessity, virtue would be a requirement of the creative life that artists, first and foremost, need to be saints, that they need to be living a life of virtue in order to understand what beauty is, according to this definition. And when you say principles that have been kept, you know, throughout the ages and in different civilization, I'm thinking you recently gave a presentation on this topic for some of our students and it went very well. And I want to go back to that in a bit. 
to remind me if I don't. Sometimes it happens. But you mentioned during that presentation and in another contest that I'd be happy if you can explain more to our audience the principles of integritas, claritas, and consonancia. Consonancia, right? Yes. So these principles that remain, could you tell us more about this? Absolutely. And I have to admit, I'm still a bit of a novice in this field. Those of us who are tasked with practice and production, if you will, you know, we would consider ourselves practitioners. There are theorists out there, those who are involved in academia from whom we have learned this material. They're fantastic. I would be happy to provide some recommendations. I truly hope that I will do their teachings and the teachings of the church justice. I apologize to any erudite members or listeners of this podcast who might be able to do a much better job. Oh, we, um, well, we welcome them for our next <laughs> show, you know, like if they have something better come. to say, yeah. Please come. I will sit at your feet and learn. So yes, these three principles of Thomas Aquinas, ultimately integritas is a place to begin integrity, if you will. There's different translations into English of these words, but the idea that an object has to have all of its parts, all of its constituent parts, the things that are necessary for it to be the thing need to be there. My uh, teacher and, and mentor, Dr. Dennis McNamara, who's a great architectural theologian, has a wonderful course on beauty, actually, through the Liturgical Institute, which is available online. I don't get any commission. We'll provide, <laughs> we'll provide a link. Yeah. We'll. And, uh, and so Dennis will, will describe this as the ness of a thing. Add ness at the end, N-E-S-S. So a dog has dogness. And for a dog to be a dog, you know, there are certain things. It's got to have four legs. It's got to have a, a waggy tail. And it's got to have a bark. And so all of the things have to be present. And if a child were asked to capture, you know, a dog to dress up like a dog or to draw a dog, these are the things that would be present that we would consider as defining attributes. The same goes to my practice in terms of what a church building is. This first question of integritas, a church building has to have all the stuff that makes it a church building. It's got to have an altar. It's got to have an ambo. It's got to have a crucifix. So these are the things that make it a church. And if any of those things are missing, then the object itself is is not complete. It's the, not just a new style, right? That's right. That's right. You, we can't invent a new style that is absent the necessary constituent parts. The second attribute is consonancia, and that all the parts have to have consonance or proportionality to one another. So in a church building, to continue that example, or actually we can go back to the dog. <laughs> Certain things were out of proportion. The dog would not seem right. If its tail were larger than its body, it would look more like a kangaroo than a, Could than a dog. Could I say it's harmony as well? Yes, I think that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, in a harmony, there's a certain peacefulness when all of the parts are at rest because they're doing the right thing, they're in the right place, they're all working together. In a church building, and even in the process of designing a new church building or a renovation of a church, the analogy that we use is drawn straight from Scripture that applies this principle, and it's the mystical body of Christ. Every one of us has been placed in the body some of us might imagine ourselves as fingers or toes or hands or feet. Some of us might be an earlobe or <laughs> the voice, absolutely, or a toenail, of course. And even something like a toenail, and this is an example that we used not too long ago when I was here, a toenail might seem insignificant or a ligament in the toe. But as we know, great athletes can sometimes be out of commission for weeks or months with that injury to that toe ligament. Oh, no we all know how toe. we feel yeah. when you have your little finger um, in the door in the morning waking up. And no you're doubt. Hurt, you right? stub your toe or you <laughs> twist, you sprain your finger. Absolutely. So these little things can have a profound impact. So all the parts have to be working together. And that's that second principle of consonancia. You also would not necessarily want a church that has, say, only 20 chairs in it or 20 seats and pews. 
but 400 seats in the choir and, you know, maybe an ambo that's sure elevated and beautiful, no doubt. But then, you know, despite having a, this beautiful elevated ambo, you have a card table for the altar, right? Mm-hmm. So these parts are not in proportion to one another. There's not a harmony. The tail is wagging the dog, if you will. So, and then the third principle would be claritas, which is clarity or radiance or the splendor of the truth as it's uh, sometimes described. So it's the apparentness of the truth to be conveyed. So this is a little bit less tangible, a little bit harder to grasp. So would opinion. it be the opposite of like the contemporary art where the artist would say, of course, you don't understand what it is about. I need to tell you about it. So it's claritas basically the opposite. Yeah, in a sense, with abstract art, one of the things that's often said kind of jokingly about abstract art would be, what is it? And of course, the defense a lot of times is the artist wants you to create your own meaning. In a church building, there's certainly elements of that in planes, if you will, or layers of meaning. Those are not even secondary or, or tertiary to what needs to be there. There's layers of meaning that the church says need to be there. And likewise, in other aspects of art, and whether it's profane or secular in nature, there's certain things that the artist needs to be conveying, that the artist, the craftsperson has to convey a responsibility to convey certain truths. And there are aspects that might vary from person to person and how that connects with you or various levels of interpretation. But abstraction is always to be an exercise in revealing truth. So the purpose of abstraction is not to obscure the truth. It's to obscure facets that might flatten the truth in order to allow the truth to become more three-dimensional. And so that's really what we're trying to do in all art, particularly sacred art. For instance, this balance between an overly or hyper-realistic figure of a human figure or angelic or something like that divine, if it's the persons of the Trinity, versus something that's highly stylized, you can go way to that other end of the spectrum and make something so abstract that I can't tell what it is. Is that a person? I don't know. I don't see arms and legs. You know, we're missing parts, integritas, or it's the head is twice the size of the body because it's so abstracted. It's, you know, consonantia, the proportionality is off. And of course, altogether, we're missing claritas. It's unclear what it is. I don't know what the artist is trying to tell me. So these principles are found sort of par excellence in sacred art and then flow, if you will, to varying degrees to other types of art. But that core question of what is it? Does it have all that it needs to have? Are the pieces and parts in relation to one another? Is it clear? What is it communicating? That is a responsibility, certainly of all art, to speak on an intentional level, even if there's room for tertiary themes to be interpreted in a personal relative way. So, Michael, what you say, I just keep thinking that if there's probably some truth in the comment made by those, let's say, conservative critics of art that say that beauty disappeared from this world and from arts when sacred art disappeared, and this goes with the disappearance of God from our lives. And by God, I don't mean necessarily the Christian God, but the idea that we're a creature and we are a loved creature. We desire a creature that are in this world for a purpose. So we all have the feeling that it's a generalized feeling of living in ugliness. And we hear it, you know, we see it in the way buildings are. It's your job, right? And we see it in architecture, but we see in the conversations. We see in the way people dress. We see in the way... People talk to each other, this lack of beauty as a lack of God. So one thing that I, you know, that I feel like asking you is what you are doing, which is with reference to liturgy, is it possible to do it also with reference to our daily lives? Like, can we bring beauty to our regular lives? Yes, absolutely. So, okay. So that's a, yeah, which I mean, and, you know, 
of course, we agree with you because that's why we had an event in beauty. But I would like to hear from you how you think we can bring beauty to our lives. And then I have another question that just came to mind, but let's stick this one. Great. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Again, to repeat my answer, yes, absolutely. I think there's a way to reintegrate these things. I think it's a problem of integration. I think that we are disintegrated in this area. Society is disintegrated. The church is disintegrated. It is not integrated. There is a breakdown of how we experience some of these core truths in the church. I would even point to something that we experience a lot of times. It's easy to paint with broad strokes, but admitting here and trying to tread lightly and be cautious in the language, there is sometimes a tendency for there to be a suspicion or a distrust, if you will, of dealing with beauty in circles that are primarily focused on evangelization. Of course, there's a wonderful new movement in the church to integrate these two. But as I've seen, there is a history in the church in past years and decades of a disintegrated approach that in some way beauty poses a threat or sometimes (laughs) is maybe just not fitting with evangelization. At best, maybe a distraction. At worst, an an, an opponent or an an enemy or a foe of authentic renewal and authentic evangelization in the church. And that's a tragedy. It's like, I mean, just knowing what we're up against in the church and what we're trying to do to renew the culture and to allow the culture to be capable of conveying the gospel message, the enculturation of the gospel, it's like going up against a prize fighter with both hands tied behind our back to try to do evangelization without beauty. It's just, not only is it counterproductive, but it's entirely foolish. So it's heartbreaking, I think, to realize this. And this is the work that we're seeing more and more that we're called to. It's one of the reasons why we're studying. And I would very much consider myself and my my colleagues would consider themselves as students of this. We're only able to indulge in the church's teachings in an academic capacity in a limited way, you know, in, in between time serving clients and things like that. But it's work that we take very seriously. And we see a lot of other people striving to do that. The reason that's so important is throughout history, Again, removed from the Judeo-Christian history, artists and theologians were always viewed at kind of the top of the academic, you know, it took the most training to be able to think and write and speak and teach about God, to sacrifice, to be a mediator between man and God, as many priests in cultic faiths saw themselves. So the idea of applying these principles of theology and our exercise and how we relate to God And allowing those to convey to secular culture is really important. So if we've gotten that wrong in some way, i.e. if our churches don't look like churches, if our churches are not beautiful, if our liturgies are not beautiful, if they're disordered and disintegrated, everything else will be. But what you said at the beginning, there is no God. Because if beauty is, so you are evangelizing without the main guest. Sure, sure. Or, Or at the very least, we're trying to explain the idea of a loving God without the manifestation. But let me, let me, let me stop you there. Let me get you out of the church and go, because this is what I'm thinking, right? So it's the beauty for everyone, a beauty that anyone can experience even out of the church. And I think that the connection to what you said, that beauty is, speaks of God and of, for us, the Christian God that is love, is that the lack of beauty is a lack of care. And the word care is an expression of love, right? So I'm thinking of, you know, the flowers that a mom puts on a table. And they would not look beautiful unless there is some care in the way. And so this care is a form of love, a love for the thing in itself, for that table, for the people that will be invited. And so the question I have for you is, do you think that the work you do 
with the architecture in the church can also then be brought home by people that will replicate these acts of beauty out of the church? Or do we need to, you know, to have independent ways of restoring, like you restored as an architect, but we should restore it in our different capacities, whatever we do. Definitely. And that's really the principle of reintegration. And that's why we have to start with the highest ideas about beauty, which there's no way of getting around it. They're always going to come back to church, worship, what we believe about God. It is very difficult to make this kind of audacious claim about an objective definition for beauty apart from God. Because if we're using that definition of beauty as a a defining attribute or manifestation of God and God's love, it's very difficult to then establish anything that's not relative. And I think that's part of the problem. As our ideas about God have broken down, as more and more people are questioning or outright rejecting a belief in God, or even just in embracing a sort of pantheon of different ideas of God, it becomes very slippery and tough to kind of pin down and grasp firmly who or what is God and what can I believe about him. So this is why, in my opinion, beauty has taken on so many other meanings and why it's reduced to what I like, what's my personal taste, what I find attractive or appealing. And so um, In many ways, ugliness, quite literally the opposite. So to that, that was a question I had in mind. We both recognize that there are very beautiful picture of a crippled. There are very beautiful picture of a dog without one leg. So where does those principles that you were describing before, right? That the body needs to have all these parts. What is that beauty that I recognize in what is ruined or broken? Yes. Well, this is dicey. It's certainly tough to approach this in a way that everybody feels entirely comfortable with. Again, my confidence in this area is falling back on the church's teaching. So Mm. I can certainly present an argument that I think is appealing for society as a whole, but the only reason I have any confidence in it is because ultimately I haven't created this framework, right? So if somebody disagrees with this, you know, they're welcome to, but this is also what the church teaches. And it's the reason that I have discerned, I guess, serving within the church. So within the Christian framework, the idea is that brokenness or disorder or the effects of an accident or anything else that is not as it should be, human suffering on the whole, chaos, disorder, sin, destruction. Jesus on the cross. All of these things. Jesus on the cross. So the picture of Jesus on the cross. It's still very beautiful. That all of these things have beauty. And the idea is not that these things have beauty in their own right. Otherwise, the idea of perfect order wouldn't be beautiful, right? So we have to kind of figure out the difference there. If we're going to, on the one hand, claim and be honest about claiming that there is a wholeness and an integrity to the original order that God planned, when he created, if you will, original man in the the philosophical term, in the garden, everything is perfect prior to the fall, prior to sin, prior to everything experiencing the effects of that fall. So before anyone experiences sickness or deformity or accidents or even suffering or death, right? That that was the definition of beauty. Now, as sin enters the world and disorder and chaos into the world, the definition of beauty maybe takes on a little bit fuller of a meaning, right? And the idea comes to a head in the incarnation that God himself enters into that. He doesn't hold it at a distance and say, I reject this because it's not a part of my plan. He says, this will actually become part of my plan. And it is so much a part of my plan that I'm going to enter in it myself. He is incarnate. He takes on flesh. He takes on that fallen human condition and enters into the brokenness. Like you said, the picture of the crucified Christ is something then that 
all of us can identify with. The idea that those of us who are suffering can look upon uh, Christ who experienced pain and suffering and doubt and all of these things. So it's not that the brokenness in and of itself is beautiful. It's that the brokenness in and of itself can be redeemed and is not something to be held at arm's length, but is something that by its very purpose can become a means of uniting ourselves to Christ, that it is in that suffering and in the brokenness, in the disorder, that Christ is closest because he became sin who knew no sin. He literally became that brokenness. So to apply this again to the design world, I would not take a piece of broken stone that's asymmetrical and call it an altar because this is beautiful and it's broken. The end goal is not brokenness. The brokenness is not the destination. I am convinced that beauty speaks to everyone and that is objective to everyone. And Scruton in the documentary we showed in the student, I stand to agree with him. Like we have a natural reaction to certain music, certain images, certain sunset. We recognize that there is beauty there. So I think... I think we were made to, and I think that's again where it's always going to pull us into the realm of the theological. Why do we have this universal appreciation? Because we were made to. Why were we made to? Because we were made for a relationship and that relationship is meant to be evident and made apparent because of this appreciation. Why am I constantly looking outside of myself? Why is nature beautiful? Why am I finding myself here enjoying all these things? Why does the earth seem to be the center of the cosmos, even if we know that it's not in terms of cosmological cycles? But could we say for you know the non-believers, at least that philosophically speaking, we can and should always argue that the true, the good, and the beautiful, they always go together. Without a doubt. So how do you convince the skeptical. What is usually your take? You know, when they say, no, come on, it's just a matter of, we went into that field, but I'd say he doesn't believe. So what would you, what is your answer to the non-believer that tells you, no, that's my way, no. I'm definitely open to my answer changing over time. The best answer I have for that right now is that beauty is something that ultimately has to be encountered. It can't be argued, it can't be reasoned, beauty has to be encountered. And until beauty is encountered, it's not very helpful necessarily to this discussion. And I think people will continue to conflate beauty with attractiveness or appeal. That reminds me of like falling in love. Sure. Right? So you can't describe, they can say, oh, no, I don't. You know, I have my own idea of what relationships should look like. And then they fall in love and then they finally realize, well, that's what <laughs> And everything is meant. different, right? Or uh-huh. you have the first kid and then all of a sudden, I thought I knew before and now everything is different. We hear these things all the time. We see them yeah. in the TV and the movies. That's very true. We should close, although I could continue to speak about beauty with you forever, as it happened when we had Likewise. these events with the students part of the programming we do. So you were invited with Heart Historian to tell them something about beauty. What I wanted, you know, to ask is you told me that then the students met you at Art Times and wanted to continue the conversation, which tells me that there is a desire to talk about these topics. So in your opinion, on a scale from one to 10, how important is it to talk to students today, to university students? about this particular topic or about topics like virtues, which is what we tend to do with them. And would you send your you know, future children or you're about to get married, like would you send them to a place like the Austin Institute to attend our programming on these things? Do you think it's <laughs> useful? Absolutely. I'm very biased and I think you already know my answer, but I would say 10 out of 10. I think without those conversations about beauty, truth, and goodness, without conversations about virtue, there's not really... Not to say there's not a point about doing the rest, but it's severely handicapped, I believe. And I think that I say every day I talk with my colleagues when we're recapping our work, 
reminding ourselves of our mission, if we are not striving for holiness, for lives of virtue, if we're not being transformed on a daily basis to be better, what we do is really meaningless in a sense and is really going to be handicapped. Would you agree that since the tragedy, I would say, for the young generation is porn, probably the best antidote is tell them what is really beautiful and the fact that the beauty of a woman or of a man doesn't come from there being an object of pleasure, but that there is what you said, you know, the face of the creation of this person, like it's meant to be, to speak to me of a greater love, which is their identity. To me, it's speaking of beauty is probably the best way out of this terrible situation in which we are. Absolutely. I think it is. I think there's obviously a whole movement that believes that beauty will save the world. And there's different ways to couch that. But again... And Pope Ratzinger, as you mentioned, was uh, the Via Pulchritudinis. Uh, absolutely. Pope Benedict XVI has a beautiful theology, the Via Pulchritudinis, the way of beauty. So we, sh- we should link also Leading that book to our you know episode. We'll have that. As well as another graduate program that I'm currently enrolled in through Pontifex University in a program that's really built around the way of beauty. They have a Master of Sacred Arts program that I would highly recommend. The courses are also available for uh, audits. Awesome. So that's another link. And then, of course, my preferred link on beauty, which is the documentary by Sir Roger Scruton. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't watched it. If you have watched it a couple of years ago, watch it again and again and again. We need beauty. Beauty will save the world. Absolutely. We're not the first ones to say it, but it's probably important to repeat it now. I want to thank you again, Michael. Thank you again for your work. You have an important mission, a difficult mission. You're speaking also about difficult topics. You really say what you think. So we want to thank you for that. Thank Thank you you for what you did with the students, telling them about liturgy and the importance of beauty and liturgy. And I hope to have you here again. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.